Runforce Mark says, great to have Mark with us. So, Mark, Mark leads a church in Melbourne, Australia. It's called Red Church. Mark is a dear friend. We've been doing life together for a number of years now. And we want to receive you as a gift for this moment. As a dear friend, as a teacher, as a prophet. So I want to encourage you. It is a real treat for us to be hosting Mark. And we want to open our hearts and minds, not just to you, but to what the Lord might want to say through you. So you, you go wherever you want to go in this interview. I'm going to ask questions, but if you want to take it in like, loads of different directions, feel free. Um, so three questions I want to ask you, just to give you a heads up of where we're heading. Like number one, to help us understand, spiritually speaking, the cultural moment we find ourselves in. Number two, what the Spirit's stirring in the church right now. Number three, how we can get on board. Yeah, straightforward as a trajectory. So let's start with number one. There are a lot of podcasts right now helping people try and understand this moment. Like The Rest is Politics is an example of many others, like just talking through some of what's happening. Very few do it from a faith lens of trying to spiritually understand this moment. And it seems this fascination to understand probably speaks to the massive panic that people don't know what's happening. And therefore, prophetic voices sent from God to help us understand spiritually the moment we find ourselves in. They are an incredible gift and you're one of those voices. So help us. What do you see as you look around? Um, what do you see stirring in the culture? And where's the spirit at work in the world? I think, I think there's two levels and two layers we have to look at. So I think that when we look at where the world is at the moment, um, one term I've sort of used to capture this moment is a grey zone. Um, we've come to the end of an era, but the end of the era isn't fully over yet. Yeah. So there's still elements from where we've just been. So you can fool yourself that everything's still the same. And then we can see things emerging. Um, you can see robotics and artificial intelligence. You can see where we think we're going, but not exactly sure. So it's a little bit like you're in no man's land between the two. And so that's what I call a grey zone. And so we've come to, like often there's periods where you come to the end of an era, but then you come to the end of a multiple eras. Um, you know, you look at the era that I think most people here have lived through, that really a new era was born in the world in 1989 when the end of communism came. And there was this vision in the world that what the world would do was slowly progress to this kind of wonderful utopia. And the world would get smoother. And you could travel the world and, and do it all uh, by organising it online. And I could come to London and use my Uber app. And it was all just smooth. And you go to any Uniqlo store and it'd be the same shirt for the same price. <laughs> and uh, it was just this sort of vision of a world. And, and there was a religious element to that. Any utopia has a religious foundation yeah. because there's nothing that says in the world that everything should get better. Yet so many people believe that things were going to slowly get better. You think about the words that we use when something happens. People say, look, it's the 21st century now. We don't really do that kind of thing. <laughs> and embedded in that is this sense that we're just going to move and get morally better yeah. uh, over time. But the wheels have started to fall off. And it's hard to know exactly when it began, but there was a series of shocks. One would be September 11th, 2008, global financial crisis. Um, but I think things began to intensify, particularly 2016, unexpected political results like Brexit, election of Donald Trump. Uh, just things weren't going in the direction that we told they, that we told that they would go in. Uh, COVID, the world stopping. We now have this era where money has been free and that's ending. 
And a little bit like I use it, it's like a kid has been at the shopping centre spending their parents' credit card and now their mum has turned up and someone's got to pay the bill. Um, so we are heading into a series of, I think, profound crises that are happening all at the same time. Um, but what I try and get people to do is realise that this is also a bunch of spiritual things happening yeah. at the same time. What I think we're coming to the end of is we're coming to a faith crisis that secularism is having. Often we talk about faith crises and doubt in the church and people deconstructing and there's been that language. But what I think a lot of people don't realise is that's actually happening to culture at the same time. So a lot of the gods of the culture, the idols of the culture are falling over and that's creating a real spiritual hunger because people are no longer believing what they've been told and that's a massive opportunity. Wow. So, you know, when you lean into some of these like global events that are shaking the world... Like, fear can kick in, and we're seeing the effects of fear all around us. Despair can kick in, and and we're seeing people carrying the weight of the world on their shoulders. But as someone who's trying to observe what's happening in the world and spiritually trying to understand what the Lord's doing, you've become a messenger of hope, not despair. So as someone that's kind of seeing what's happening, all the darkness as well as the light, how do you nurture, like, hope, not despair? Well, it was funny. When everything was fantastic, like, people hated me because I was like a prophet of, <laughs> prophet of doom. Um, and now it's getting all doomy. I'm getting real hopey. Um, but, you know, ultimately it comes down to my hope is not in this world. Yeah. I'm not a citizen of Earth. Like, technically, I've got an Australian passport. I exist in one place in time. But actually, I'm a citizen of heaven. And, and I think what we're told is that it's, it's almost this sense that we can't believe the end of what we're experiencing. So we see that as the end of the world. It's not. Yeah. Like, like, I look at my grandfather. My grandfather lived through the Great Depression. You know, he, he, he lost, you know, multiple of his siblings to alcoholism. Very poor working class area of Melbourne. Do you know? And their lives were tremendously difficult. My other grandfather lived in, in you know, went through World War II and, and fought the Japanese in, in Borneo. Terrible, terrible things. And so people go through stuff in history. And I think, like, it's more that I think what's actually happening in many ways, it's, what is being revealed is where is our hope in? Yeah. My grandfather didn't have the expectations that people do today. But that's my grandfather's. Um, so for me, I think it's a revealing of where does my hope lie? And there's a great quote by George Hunter, who's like a, a missiologist and who studies, someone who studies mission. And he said, look for the gaps between idols. So, for example, you know, you may have someone who believes in, in this idol here, but then their faith in this idol falls, and before they jump onto you, the next idol, there's this gap. And there's a lot of people there right now. Wow. There's a lot of people who just gone, I believe my life would get better, the economy was just going to keep growing, things would stay the same, the world would not be upset, the world wouldn't shut down in a global pandemic. Yeah. That's happened. And the amount, the other thing that gives me hope is the amount of evangelistic conversations I'm having. Yeah. The amount of conversations I'm having with Christians who weren't taking their faith serious and like, okay, now it's serious time. Yeah. Um, I, I have tremendous hope because what I'm seeing at the same time is, I think it began in COVID. We had a very long lockdown in Melbourne. And so all of a sudden people realised that they didn't have to fly me across the world. They could just Zoom me. So I, just, I, just, I just had these days where I was just talking to, to people on all these different continents in the church. Yeah. I was talking to people in India in the morning and someone in the afternoon in Singapore and someone in London and someone in Vancouver. And what I saw for the first time was a bunch of Christian leaders going, oh my goodness, we don't know what to do now. Yeah. And actually our scripts are falling over 
And now we're turning to the Holy Spirit. I think some of the things we're seeing now that's happening in 2023 are actually fruit of people coming to the end of themselves in 2020. Yeah, that's right. So, so my hope is not in this world. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about what's stirring in the church because there is, there's chaos all around. I, I think the church in the West, we're seeing it in the UK, and there's a recent census that highlighted what we knew to be true, which is cultural Christianity. It's like it's dying. The church is, is hemorrhaging. There, there is a death, and when there's death, you need to pray for resurrection life. And, yeah. and what we're seeing is like maybe like the beginnings of like new life breaking out in extraordinary ways. So some of that desperation that mm. you spoke of, of like the mm. scripts don't work, like mm. we can't pretend that our church is thriving when we're mm. really struggling. That desperation has actually created something encouraging. What are you seeing now then in terms of the spirit working, revitalizing the church? Yeah. There was a moment in... in 2017, when I was in our 5 p.m. service, and uh, similar demographic, you know, to here, and there was just this moment I was preaching, and in the back of my head I was thinking, which is never good when you're preaching, to be doing two things at once. And I remember just thinking, God, I, I don't know how to do this. Yeah. I'm in this very cynical city of Melbourne. It's very intellectual. Um, it's seen as the, the sort of hard place to do ministry in my country. Yeah. And I remember just thinking, coming to the end of myself, and it was almost like a joke, because I was seen as a prophet of doom before then, yeah. and it was almost like God said, Mark, you need to hope for and like, contend for renewal, yeah. literally as I'm preaching. And uh, it, was, it was this moment where I think a seed was planted in me, but I think it was planted in many people. Hmm. And I think often what happens is there's like one singular leader, one singular place, and and where God will sort of kick something off. Um, I was just asking about this church, which, you know, it's a Welsh church. And there was a moment in, in, in Wales where God turned up like that. And we want that. Like, we want to see that happen again. But actually, I think the moment we're in, what I'm seeing is there have been seeds planted. Now, in 2019, I'm sitting on a building in New York. And I had this vision, which just, just went for some time. And God revealed a bunch of stuff. I felt something was coming like something bad, <laughs> and, but I felt that it was going to be like a revealing moment and that at the same time, God was scattering seeds through the world, but he's scattering seeds of renewal in people, but it's often unlikely people. Mm. It wasn't the most charismatic, gifted leaders as we'd expect, and a lot of them weren't even necessarily what we would call leaders. So I think that, that the seeds of renewal had been planted and I think what we're starting to see now, like seeds can be underground, but when the temperature's right, it sort of creates this chemical reaction in the seed. It pushes past the coat of the seed and new life springs up. I think we're at like sort of alfalfa sprouts, little sprigs coming through the ground. Yeah. Uh, but it's exciting because I think we're at the beginning of something. But I, like we, we had a moment a few weeks ago in our church where the Holy Spirit really fell in a really unexpected way on Sunday night. And we talked about in our podcast, we just thought we're just going to talk about this, not to like big up ourselves or anything, because it was God. But what was fascinating is just we got into to work the next day and our inbox, because we talked about this on our podcast, just filled with people all over the world who are like, hey, I'm in rural Canada. This just happened. 
hey, we're in, we're in this little Australian city over here. That's not cool. Something's happening here. <laughs> Different denominations. It is happening everywhere. So the term we keep using is spot fires. It's not like it's a raging fire over there and let's all go there and base ourselves there for the next 20 years. There is spot fires starting to, to sort of dribble. And I think, the other thing, don't forget that a heck of a lot of people walked away from the church yeah. when church shut down. Yeah. And so I think what God was doing was creating a remnant yeah. and a remnant of people who were going to push him when it was tough. There were people who left church, but there were people who came back to church sure. and there were people who came to faith. And what we haven't realized is that he's been building a foundation and you need a solid foundation to build upon. And now we're starting the work of building. Yeah. Love that. Love the language of spot fires. We've been talking about spring rain, which I think is even better language, but um, that's obviously a joke. Obviously a joke. Um, not a joke. Um, so, like, spring rains are falling, right? So we're, we're, we're sensing that. We're seeing it all around us. Um, and, and part of that is preparing the soil, yes. you know. And h- how do you, you know, in a moment like when the spirit is really beginning to stir stuff, spot fires, all of that stuff, how do you deal with cynical hearts? Because, you know, there will be people who miss out on moments where God is breaking in just because there's a hardness of heart and there's a cynicism where the enemy is actually trying to, you know, nurture hardness of heart so that there can't be a receptivity to the spirit. How do you encourage where you see it? In a city like Melbourne, in a city like London, there can be resistance. How do you encourage, like, be attentive, be receptive to a moment like this? What was really interesting in 2017 when that happened... I sort of went away and prayed and like, what do you want me to do here, God? So I started opening our spaces at the end of our service yeah. and stuff started to happen, yeah. but it stopped. And I've been thinking about that since then, like, like, what is it, six years? And I realized that Arthur Wallace wrote a book called In the Day of Thy Power and he talked about the fact that if it's going to rain, and this happens probably more in Australia than it does here, is in Australia, the sun would just bake ground, so it just rock hard. It rains on that, and it's like rain falling on concrete. It just washes off. And so I remember thinking, and I read that just after that, that actually the ground needs to be broken up. And I think we've been in a ground-breaking-up period. When pride goes, when we come to the end of ourselves, when, when we go through everything that we've all been through, and what I'm seeing as well is, what, what I found fascinating is, there's this global thing happening at the moment where there's sort of like a, a, you know, you come to Britain and people say, oh, you know, we've had Brexit, we've had this, and this has all gone on, or we're in this reckoning, and so on and so on. But then you go to New Zealand, and they're like, oh, we're actually going through this. And they talk to another country, oh, we're going through this. Every, it seems like every country is going through a particular thing. It's yeah. really fascinating. And I think what that is, is a humbling. Yeah. There is a humbling happening at a macro scale and a humbling happening at a personal scale. And I think the people who've stuck around, whose hearts have been softened through the last season, and I hate to say it, but often suffering creates a softening. Yeah, that's right. Can I just say, I think there's a cultural script sometimes that suffering means disqualification. Yeah. When actually I think suffering creates a softened heart. And I think the rain then, when it's a broken up soil, comes. So I think repentance, yeah. confession, 
but also just understanding that partially what many of us have been through. I mean, so we've had stuff happen in our church, but it's also been the most rubbish six months for ages. Like we've had spiritual battle. We've had terrible things happening. We've had like people turn on us. Like literally there was points. When I was here in in the UK... Uh, about six months ago, we had a bunch of stuff happen back in Australia and I came back and I literally, took, I was on the last day I was here, I was walking along the canal behind, uh, uh, oh, I forgot where it was, um, I don't know all your station's names. <laughs> um, uh, a station. A station. Um, people are thinking, which one's got a canal behind it? Anyway, I took a photo. It's 6.30 in the morning and I took a photo. And literally I took a photo because I thought, I'm not coming back to the UK for at least well over a year. Yeah. Because when I come here, bad stuff happens back home. <laughs> and, and I remember just, just praying and, and going to our prayer room and just praying. And so it's been a season of tremendous pain. But what I realised God was doing in that time was preparing my heart. And so then when I got the invitation to come, I felt like it was like, no, step into it, come. God's doing something in the world. And I literally felt in that. He was like giving me visions that, I mean, there was one moment, like I was so painful, went through this terrible betrayal, so painful. And I literally was listening to worship and I was listening to Gas Street Worship. Ooh, painful. And, I thought uh, you were going to say KXE. <laughs> I thought you were going to listen to the recent sorry, live album from sorry, KXE. Sibling, sibling rivalry. Um, <laughs> But I remember, I remember like felt God saying that I will redeem this time of suffering. Wow. And I feel like partially even being here and sharing is part of that. So I think people here have been going through something and God wants to redeem suffering. And actually he's been like, like just breaking up the soil in hearts because it's to receive. Yeah. And what the enemy wants to do is go, now that pain is actually a sign that it's too painful to receive. Yeah. And I think the opposite is true. So you mentioned your podcast is just as a great resource rebuilders where you probably, you know, articulate some of what you're seeing in the world where the spirit's, you know, stirring things. If I was just to name your three recent books, um, so going back, you know, you've mentioned your journey of prophet of doom, prophet of hope, um, from disappearing church a while back, reappearing church, a bit more hopeful, um, into your recent one, Non-Anxious Presence, which is probably articulating the leadership that's required for the moment we find ourselves in. Just articulate that latest book, this you know, recognition that we need now, like some non-anxious presence type leaders. Yeah. Well, I think you mentioned when, when things change in those grey zone moments, there's a tremendous amount of anxiety. Yeah. You, you know clearly where you are when the signs on the road make sense. Yeah. When your Google Maps is showing you where to go. But in grey zone, none of the signs make sense. None of the markers are there. There's no GPS. So you don't know where to go. And that builds a natural anxiety. And that's because we don't recognise the landscape. And what I realised is that there is something that's clicked in the world where if you look across different cultures, there tends to be a subset of a similar amount of people, in whether it's in Samoa or Singapore, who have a similar subset of mental health challenges and schizophrenia and so on. But what's happened particularly in the developed world is that anxiety has just jumped beyond that usual subset that is in every culture to the point where some estimates have like particularly younger adults having like 80% plus have anxiety. So the question then is there's something more going on than just the medical diagnoses that happen in every culture. 
And I began to realize that there's actually a cultural phenomenon. We are all now connected through a digital membrane, and that digital membrane has worked out that the things which are most viral are not smiling, happy thoughts. They're actually very negative thoughts, very angry thoughts, and anxiety is actually infectious. Um, If all of a sudden you and I started screaming and ran out of this building screaming, run for your life, (laughs) probably everyone else is going to follow us, even though nothing is happening because there's something something infectiousness about anxiety and fear. So what I realised is in this moment, often we've thought about leadership needing to come from someone who is very articulate, perhaps someone has a commanding personality, perhaps they have the right look or they've got the right degrees or the right positional power. But I think we're moving into a time, and I sort of bounced this off some of the work of Edwin Freeman, who was a rabbi and family therapist, and he said that the new kind of leadership actually comes from someone who is non-anxious. So it's not the person, you know, if we ran out and we were screaming, but then someone in the audience who may not be a leader say, it's okay, there's nothing happening, Mark and Peter just weird, (laughs) everyone be calm. Let's yeah. just all sit here and give it a minute. At that moment, that person becomes the leader, not us. Yeah. So the minute we start like panicking and running out of the room, we lose our leadership influence. But someone who is calm, no one panic, this is the exit, they're the person who becomes a leader in this moment. So what I realised was, though, that the problem is many people who want to lead feel the backlash of the culture because the culture now says, like, we're anxious, you're a leader. Why are you not anxious and why are you not responding to our anxiety? So there's something where what Friedman said, leaders almost have to say no to the anxiety and define against it in order to lead people out of the anxiety. And that's incredibly countercultural. So that's the essence. But what, what my sort of point in the book too is Friedman argued that and Friedman was sort of this guy who I think was quite sort of like able to do that from almost a human sort of strength. I'm not good enough. <laughs> I get worried. <laughs> I get afraid about things. So what I realised, he said, you have to be a leader. You have to cultivate a non-anxious presence. But the argument I make in the book is I think he falls short, that we can only have a non-anxious presence with the presence of God. Come on. I find it fascinating, absolutely fascinating, that when you look at the Asbury thing, when you look at some of the stuff that even happened at our church, is the overwhelming sense people had. It wasn't people like jumping and spinning in the air. It was literally people saying, I felt an incredible amount of peace. Yeah. And I felt anxiety go. And what if actually the Holy Spirit is coming to equip a world in which anxiety is like a pandemic and actually equip people for peace, We can trust him. He has us. And that's actually a way forward. Not loud, not flashy, not charismatic. The world's had enough of loud, flashy, charismatic, powerful people. I think the future now is for the peaceful presences who are finding their peace in the presence. Come on. I love that. I love that. Let's just remain on the Asbury thing. So, because I think we, you know, I, I spent a bit of time out there, you know, saw that. And we've chatted a bit about it, that comparing maybe the 80s, 90s charismatic renewal movement, which, again, a number of us at a younger age saw God do some incredible things. It felt like the church was rediscovering the power of the Spirit. So lots of signs and wonders, manifestations, people from a background of having written off the miracles and the supernatural stuff, suddenly seeing all of the miracles, all this stuff happening. This feels very different, which is the church rediscovering or being invited into the presence of Jesus. So it was incredibly gentle and people were being drawn incredibly close. That peace that passes understanding was, was very much part of it. There were some things going on that I think were pivotal that I just want to ask you about. One is the power of confession. 
um, and the church taking holiness seriously. Because I think we've had models of church that are about entertainment, production, holiness, you know, and we've pursued other things. Just talk us through holiness and the power of confession, taking holiness seriously. Yeah. I think one of the dominant, dominant spiritual strongholds of our age, and I think defines cities like mine and yours, is the self. And cities have been rebuilt, rebuilt around delivering what the self's desires are. Just walk around. When you, when you go home tonight, when you walk through the city, just look around and say, what is this city saying to me? Now, there's the older buildings that may say something else, but look at the advertisements, look at the billboards, look at the kind of stores and shops and entertainment that's on offer. It is literally, we can give you anything you'll, you want. Any desire that is in you can be met in London. And so that is compromising. That is syncretistic. You know, uh, if you look at what was happening in Israel, Israel had a call, but Israel was continually double-minded. Yeah. It wasn't that Israel just completely became pagan. It's that Israel had a, had a heart which at times turned to Yahweh, but then also was going off in times of stress and, and, and just times of just giving in, worshipping the other gods. Yeah. And I think that's been the church. Yeah. And I think particularly we've almost had this thing that, look, younger people... They're going to go through stuff and it's difficult and the world today is seductive and so on. But I think there's something so pure about the holiness. Like this is the most countercultural thing you can do in a city like this. In the 21st century neoliberal global economy that we've built is to say no to self, to confess that you're not the centre of the universe and to actually repent. (laughs) Like that is completely like punk rock today. (laughs) Like it is nothing more than that, you know. So I think it's, it's... there's a quote, G.K. Chesterton wrote a biography of Thomas Aquinas, and he said, he said some line, it's something like, that God will bring a saint who is an antidote to the poison of the society at that time. Yeah. And I sort of feel like what God is doing this, in these renewals is he's bringing an antidote to the poisons of the society in our time. Let's also just say we've had you know, various things where we've seen the church and leaders in the church not living lives of holiness. Yeah. So this is a renewing movement. And when, when the spirit comes, I think the spirit's like a double-edged sword, the presence, it will come to, to bring a healing balm to those who hunger for the spirit. Yeah. For those who are filled with pride and flesh, which is all of us, before we confess <laughs> and repent, it like comes as a burning fire. Yeah. Like fire can warm you or it can burn you. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned in your, you know, three preaches earlier on in the day, that one of the dangers of this moment is, is we see it as just a moment that we look back on in decades to come be like, oh, wasn't 2023 cool when those united prayer gatherings and, like, you know, when there was just a strong sense of God's presence in the room, the Asbury thing, well, that was cool. And it didn't actually become a genuine revival that resets the trajectory of the spiritual landscape of this nation, yes. which yes. isn't about a few months or a few years. We're talking decades and centuries by that yes. point. Yes. Um, h- how do we be attentive to the big thing rather than just trying to celebrate the kind of micro. Yeah, like, you know, I, I shared in, in the preach about this moment that happens for John Wesley and I went to the Barbican and stood at that spot yesterday where his heart was strangely warmed and prayed. He's a young guy. He wasn't that old. A young guy in London, uh, a strange bloke, yeah. funny little man, <laughs> and uh, he's changed. He has this sort of euphoric sense that was very physical and tangible. But what's interesting is it doesn't stop there. It's what comes out of that. 
And I shared earlier, I didn't sort of give the whole story, but my friend um, uh, Roshan is a historian, he's a Kiwi, and you know, he studied the Great Awakenings. And he will talk about that effectively what flows out of that is almost a sort of 150-year awakening that literally changes the fundamental social structures of Britain. Yeah. Like fundamentally everything. And he's, he's gone down whole like rabbit holes of like the banking system and this and the design of cities. Like Melbourne is called a garden city. And when people come, it's incredibly beautiful. Part of the reason it is, is because it was built by Christians who were part of some of the fellowships at Aldersgate, who were connected to the Moravians there and the Wesleyans. And they came out to Australia and said, we want to build a city that is not going to oppress the poor, like happened back in the sort of industrial revolution of Britain. And so all these parks, universities, concerts that is in my city, secular progressive Melbourne doesn't acknowledge this history. But actually in my city, that is a touch of what happened when a man's heart was strangely warped. So my sense is like, yeah, let's, let's, I love it when the spirit falls. We've had that at our church. But if that's all there is, we're falling well short. I believe God wants to bring a 150-year awakening. Come on. That fundamentally doesn't just give you a deeper faith, but literally touches the lives of your great-grandchildren. Come on. Yes. Biologically and spiritually. You know, and, and, and you think about it. There are people in this room who are the direct spiritual descendants of what happened back then, yeah. all over the world. Yeah. Like, like in, in COVID, I you know, often go and talk in other countries and stuff like this. I was stuck walking around my own neighbourhood and I discovered the story that in my neighbourhood there's this really old Methodist chapel, that old for Australia, like from the 19th century. <laughs> and I, I looked up its history and it was built by about four or five people, families, dragging huge rocks out of a creek in the Australian bush and it was a few people from Surrey, and it was some people from England. There was actually a, a freed African-American slave. They all come, and they're living in this forest in the east of Melbourne, and they start meeting because they've got the history in them. They're all Methodists from America's south, from the south of England. They all had that echoes of awakening in them. So they start a church on a veranda, and then they drag these rocks out of a river. That's 150 years after Wesley on the other side of the world, this group of people are pulling rocks out of a river. That's the kind of awakening I want. Like, I want to hear, like, people on Mars are starting, like, KXC, like, worship sessions in 200 years. Final question, then. How do we say yes to that? Which isn't yes to the moment, but yes to a fire that burns within us for the rest of our lives and the kind of fire that we cannot help but pass on to our children, who burn so brightly they cannot help but pass it on to their grandchildren. How do we say yes to that with every part of our being? So many people in this room are young. And if you can imagine you're moving along a motorway, and you'll get to points perhaps when you're young, and you're moving along that motorway, and it's just open roads and the traffic's flowing. But there will come times when there's exit ramps. Exit ramps will come when maybe your Christian friends don't keep walking the walk. Exit ramps will come when you encounter suffering, mortality. Exit ramps will come when the cultural pressure could actually turn up. In my state, the cultural pressure is really turning up now. Uh, where it's actually 
to be a Christian, I can't have my job anymore. Yeah. Uh, we've had people in our church who their bosses are coming to them now saying, is this going to be a problem you being a Christian? Wow. Uh, we have op-eds in our papers now talking about the fact that Christian teaching around certain, certain ethics is actually causing mental health. Like it's uh, full on pressure. That's going to come. So you're going to face multiple exit ramps as you get older. I think about the exit ramps. Mm. Yeah, I've seen. I have heaps of mates who took the exit ramps. Yeah. Renewal happens when you keep saying yes to him. Yeah. Yes to him when you don't fully understand. Yes to him when it hurts. Yeah. Yes to him when maybe it's the most loneliest path. But it's this repeated practice of saying yes to him. And what I find is it's like this, it's almost like a, you come around and maybe one of those moments where you hit an off-ramp and like there's this moment where you can jump off and you say yes to him and you keep going and there's a season of spiritual growth and then you come around, you hit another one and it feels like sometimes the enemy say you're going in circles, you're back at this problem, it's your mental health again yeah. or it's your loneliness again or yeah. you're rubbish at work or your brother or sister is so much better at you than this or whatever it may be for you. But what you find is the whole time, when you do this over a lifetime, is that actually you come back to those things, but God is taking you deeper. Yeah. And so a life of renewal isn't just a moment of the Spirit falling and you feeling filled, and they're beautiful and wonderful. It's like honeymoon love. Yeah. But actually, I think, you know, the most beautiful moments, where you see an older person who's still in love, mm. who, who's, who's taken someone and cared for them when they're suffering. And renewal is saying, I'm going to keep walking ahead with that kind of love. Yeah. A renewal that I'm still passionate when I'm 80. Yeah. You know, I, I love bumping into people who are like in their 80s, oh, who, who still have that love for Jesus. Yeah. And so I think it's going to say, like those moments will come. And actually my prayer is that you'll get to a moment and you're about to take an exit ramp. And you'll remember like some bloke from Australia saying this at the 5 p.m. service. Yeah. And you'll keep going on the motorway. Um, because he wants to build a next generation of leaders in this country. There's a baton passing moment. Yeah, there is. And, and spoiler alert, so many of the great men and women of God were doing incredible things. And when you think of them, you think of them as middle-aged people, but many of them were like in their 20s. Yeah. And actually 32 is middle-aged. Yeah. Um, really? Um, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, it's true. So, yeah, just keep saying yes. Keep saying yes to an entire life with him. Come on. Let me just give you a picture of that because it, in the morning service, my mum and dad um, were with us for the weekend because it was my brother's 40th party. And um, my, so my dad is in his mid-80s. and I don't know if you, you saw him, but we did a ministry moment about choosing to be a pillar. And, and the thing about my dad, and it's a picture for me and maybe a picture for us, he's not just faithful, and he is incredibly faithful. He's just the hungriest person in the room. So, so he's there in ministry in his mid-80s, having spent a life in ministry, asking God to make him a pillar. I'm like, Dad, you've been a pillar. I like, chill out. You've done, you, you've done your thing. You've led churches. You've, you've, and he's like, I, I want to be a pillar. You know, and it's, it's not just about being faithful. It's about being hungry for more. You know, and I think it's stirring and we've got to nurture that hunger. So we're not just hungry in our mid-20s and then it fades. That when we're in our mid-80s, we're first up for ministry, hungry to encounter God.